Father God in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you, Lord, that you reign. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. And our hearts rejoice because you're on the throne of the universe and you're ruling and reigning. And your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is seated at your right hand. And your Holy Spirit is in our, is in our presence, is in our hearts, is in our lives, is in our church. Thank you, God. You're an amazing God, and we love you. And Lord, I pray for each and every person that's here this morning. Lord, they'll leave this place loving you more. If they don't know you as their Lord and Savior, I pray when they leave, they will know you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that they'll see your greatness, your majesty, your power, your glory, and your beautiful, awesome truth this morning, Lord. Father, we've gathered to experience you, to enjoy you, to worship you and to study your word. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. All God's people said, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, it's, it's wonderful to see everybody this morning. My favorite day of the week when believers get to gather together and worship the Lord and have fellowship and rub shoulders and, um, and get into the word together. What an amazing way to start off the first day of the week than starting off in worshiping God's word. I believe it sets the course for our week when we spend time in the Word. Amen? Amen. Amen. So turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 John, 1 John chapter 5. We're going to uh, go uh, verses 6 through the end of the chapter. Verse 6 through the end of the chapter. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 21. So we'll, let's, uh, let's pray. Without further ado, we'll dive straight into the Word. Our goal here at Calvary Chapel is to study the Bible verse by verse, look at it, see what it says. I heard, I heard a, a great expositor once say, and, and I take it to heart, and I try to follow that principle, is we read it, we explain it, and then we apply it. That's, it's, it's that simple. That's what, that's what the scriptures are there for. We read it, we understand what the author is saying, and then we apply it to our lives. So let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. Father, as we dive into this really cool passage I pray, Lord, that you would bless it, bless this teaching, Lord, and help us take it to heart. Everything that's said, in Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen. Amen. 1 John chapter 5, let's read verses 6 through 8. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Now, if, you, if you're a Bible student or you read your, the scriptures regularly and you come to this passage, the first thing you're going to ask is, what in the world is he talking about? You know, this kind of, it's kind of out of flow of words. You know, it's like, what is, he, what is John talking about here? He mentions three things. Did you see them? The water, the blood, and the spirit. What is he talking about in this passage? And what he's talking about is the title of my message this morning, The Father's Testimony. The Father's Testimony Concerning Who His Son Jesus Is. If somebody was to come to me this morning and question whether Irene was truly my wife, or they, they doubted it, I could give them evidence. I could give them proof. I could show them our marriage certificate. I can show you the pictures. I can talk about when we met, how we met and give you all the details to prove to you. Or if somebody was to ask me, how, do you, how can you prove that Emily and Daniel are your kids? You know, we could show you baby pictures. We could show you uh, birth certificates. We could give you evidence. 
I could give you evidence that she is truly my wife. We could give you evidence that they are truly my kids. What the father is doing this morning is uh, he's giving evidence. He's giving a testimony to who his son Jesus is. So when we get done studying this passage this morning, our faith should go deeper into the things of the Lord. Our faith should be increased because we can trust him more because we're more confident in what we believe. The point of the passage, and we're going to give it to you up front, the point of the passage that we're studying this morning is this. The Father is making it abundantly clear through the water, through the blood, and through the Spirit that Jesus Christ is his Son and that everything the Bible says about Jesus is true. You can bank your life on it. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. He says, talking about the testimony of the Father, that key word testimony, because um, it uses it many times in this passage. It says in verse 9, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. You listen and receive the testimony of men every single day. Whether it's the news, whether it's the weatherman, whether it's a school teacher, you receive the testimony of people. And for the most part, you accept it as truth. You embrace it. And if that's what man says, how much greater should we take God's word? Because God's word, God's testimony, is greater than man's testimony. It is the greatest testimony in the universe. And this testimony, when we look back at verse 8, Uh, This testimony of the water, the blood, and the spirit, he says back in verse 8, he says the three are in agreement. The blood, uh, the water, and the spirit are all in agreement that they are the testimony of what the Father is is saying about his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to answer three questions. And be ready. If if you've been around my Bible teacher for a while, normally we stay put in our passage, and I put the extra verses up on the screen. I'm going to do a little different this morning. We're going to be going back and forth because I want you to see some key passages in understanding this text. But question number one, question number one, how has the Father testified concerning the water? How has the Father testified concerning the water? Let's answer the question that we see in John. We've got to do some unpacking here, guys. We've got to do some thinking, okay? So, so we've got we to put our brains to the text and, and see what is being said about the water. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. And I want to answer the question that John poses in his text, how has the Father testified concerning the water? Give it to you up front. The Father has testified concerning the water in reference to Jesus' water baptism the inauguration of his, of, his, uh, of his public ministry. Look at Matthew chapter 3. Check out verse 13. We'll start with verse 13. It says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by, them, by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. So the first question we have to ask when we look at this passage, we got to go another level down asking another question is, why was Jesus baptized? Did Jesus need forgiveness of sin? Did Jesus need to repent? The answer is no. He was the perfect lamb of God. Here's the deal. Jesus' water baptism uh, was a picture of his future death, burial, and resurrection. In his baptism, 
Jesus was identifying with you and me. He was identifying with sinners. His baptism symbolized the sinner's baptism into his righteousness. Just give you a cool little insight here into this text. Who is Jesus speaking to in this text? Look at verse 15. But Jesus answering is said to him. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to John the Baptist. And he says, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us. Do you notice how Jesus includes John the Baptist in this text here? He says, it's permitting to us. Think about this. According to Luke chapter 1, verse 5, John the Baptist was a descendant of the, of the Levites. Okay, What did the Levites do in the Old Testament? They presented the sacrifice to the Lord in the tabernacle. They were the ones who presented the sacrifice to the Lord. So here you have, in the New Testament, John the Baptist, the Levitical priest, presenting the sacrifice to the Lord. This was the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry. And in John chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 29, what does John the Baptist say? It's really cool. You think about John the Baptist saying this to the crowd, which I believe he did. But I also believe prophetically he was saying it to the Lord. In John 1, 29, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Like the Levitical priest having the Lamb presenting it in the Old Testament, here you have the Levitical priest of John the Baptist presenting Jesus, the Lamb of God, as the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of the world. And we're going to see in just a minute the Father validate this. Look, continue in verse uh, 16 of Matthew chapter 3. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were open, And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. Here we see God the Son. We see God the Holy Spirit. And we're fixing here God the Father's testimony. Here is the Father's testimony that John is referencing in, in 1 John um, chapter 5. Here's the testimony, verse 17. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. To answer that first question, how has the God the Father testified concerning the truth of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? The Father testified at Jesus' baptism that Jesus is his beloved son, Please hold on to that thought. Please hold on to that thought as we go into the next question, the next testimony of the Father. This is the Father's beloved Son. That means there was a special love that the Father had for the Son. He was a special Son. He was His only Son. He was the Son He loves. There is one that loves Jesus more than you and I could ever love Him. And that's God the Father. We love the Lord Jesus. We want to serve the Lord Jesus. We, we love him with all the affections of our heart. But there is one who loves him greater. And that is God the Father. He is his beloved son. This is my, he says it there in verse 17, the testimony. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So number one, the water represents the father's testimony at his baptism, that this is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. Question number two, thinking back to, um, don't go back to 1 John yet because I'm fixing to take you to the Old Testament. Question number two, uh, 
is how has the Father testified concerning the blood? Remember, it was the water, the blood, and the Spirit. What does the Scripture say about the blood? How does the Father testify concerning the blood? I want to take you down two paths. Two paths to show you how the Father has testified concerning his Son. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. Many of you, if you study the Scriptures, you know where we're going. You know where we're going. We're going 700 years before Christ when the prophet spoke of the suffering and the sacrifice and the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 53, I want to take a survey of a couple of verses. How has the Father, I'm answering the question, how has the Father testified concerning the blood? Look at Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourgings we are healed. The Father is testifying in Isaiah chapter 53, 700 years before the crucifixion, 300 years before the art of crucifixion was created by the Persians and then perfected by the Romans, that this is how the Father would deal with sin. Through the suffering of his Son, verse 5 says, Jesus was pierced. He was crushed. He was scourged for our sin. He he gave his life for us at Calvary. But he was the eternal God, the eternal man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he suffered greatly so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins and be washed clean and made whole. He was pierced through. He was crushed. He was scourged. Look down at verse 6. Father testifying concerning the blood. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to what? Fall on him. The just penalty for your sin that you deserve, that I deserve, was placed on Jesus. Was placed on Christ. See, we deserve judgment. For our sin. We, we deserve discipline, but Jesus took it for us. On the cross, he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? At that point, the Father was pouring out the punishment on him for our sin. Whose plan was it to crucify Jesus? Whose plan was it to crucify Jesus? Think before you, before you answer. Look at verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Whose plan was it to crush Jesus? It was the Father's plan. It was the Father's plan because of his great love for us. It says says in verse 10, But the Lord was pleased to crush him. You know, Jesus was crushed by the Father, For our sin. He was put to grief. He was made a guilt offering. Remember I said back at the first point. He was was, um, his beloved son. Think about this for a minute now. Jesus was his beloved son. There's one who loves Jesus. More than you and I. And that was the father. But yet the father. Gave up his son. That he loved immensely. He loved immensely his son. His son loved him. He loved his son. But he gave up his beloved 
beloved son for our sin. This teaches us how far the father is willing to go to save us. That he gave up his only begotten son. It wasn't just a, okay, son, go do your mission. It was Jesus saying, George, I'm giving you my very best. You know, Paul, I'm giving you my very best. He was telling each and every one of us prophetically through the scriptures, I'm giving you my very best, my beloved son that I love to be the sacrifice for your sin. Look down at verse 12, talking about the father testifying concerning the sacrifice and blood of Christ. Verse 12 says, therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressions. To answer my question, how has the Father testified concerning the blood? The Father testified uh, through these Old Testament scriptures that Je of Jesus' death, suffering, and blood. Now we look at scripture. Now I want to take you to the historical event. I want, I want to drive this home for a minute. We, we're going we're to go through some other scriptures fairly quickly, but I want to drive this home because I believe this is the main thrust of the text this morning is this, this meaning of the, the water, the blood, and the spirit. Let's go to the historical event. Now turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. We looked at the text. We looked at the Old Testament scriptures. Now let's look at what happened on that day, on that historical event, the day of that historical event. Matthew chapter 27. We'll pick it up at verse 45. Looking at, and remember, keep the question in mind, how has the Father testified concerning the Son? The Son was here on earth, the Father was in heaven, so how is the Father? Look at verse, chapter 27, verse 45. Now the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. How many hours is that? Three hours. Three hours of darkness. Who controls the Son? God. God controls the Son. Psalms chapter 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night unto night they display knowledge. There's no language or voice where their voice is not heard. He, the, uh, the Romans chapter 1, between verses 18 and 20, Paul says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have clearly been seen, so all men are without excuse. He controls the heavens and the earth. Okay? Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He controls the sun. He controls the moon. He controls Mars. He controls Jupiter. He controls everything. And in this moment of darkness, he's keeping the sunlight from coming upon the earth to testify of the magnitude of the cross. Continue verse 46. He controls the sun. Verse 46. After the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran, taking a sponge. He filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And here it is, guys, verse 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Who tore the veil? The Father. 
saying that the sacrifice of Christ was accepted before him. That we, you and I, could enter into the Holy of Holies. Josephus says that this veil in the temple was 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, and 4 inches thick. They had to use, they had to, uh, use oxen and mules to move it around. They say it took over 300 priests just to maintain the curtain. That's how big and how massive this veil that protected the Holy of Holies was. And the Father says, what takes 300 men, what y'all can't move around because it's so big and so massive, at Jesus' death on the cross, the Father reached down with his hand and said, boom! He split the veil in two. God was speaking because Jesus is on the cross. This is the Father. And then it continues. The veil was torn too from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Who has the ability to shake the earth? God. Nahum 1.5 says the earth trembles at his presence. Verse 52. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Who has the power to raise the dead? God. Verse 54. I love verse 54. I love verse 54. Think about, put yourself there. All these cataclysmic events. Boom, boom. Veils being torn in two and earthquakes and, and darkness. I don't know about you, but I'd be a little scared. I'd be a little scared. I'd be a little freaked out. I'd be looking for the, the earthquake shelter. I'd be going and running and trying to figure out what's, what in the world is going on. Look at verse 54 in, in, in Matthew chapter 27. Look at what happens to the centurion. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquakes and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said what? Truly, this is the Son of God. It wasn't a witness. It wasn't someone sharing the gospel with them. They saw what was taking place at the cross. And all these evidences, all these testimonies of the, the, the father was sending to validate the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. He was like, whoa, truly, Jesus is the son of God. So to answer question number two in our text, how has the father testified concerning his blood? He's given testimony of Jesus' blood through Isaiah the prophet and through the events surrounding the crucifixion. That's how he testified concerning the blood. And then the final one. What is it? The water, the blood, and the, the spirit. How has the Father testified concerning the spirit? Y'all know this verse. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, this is really cool. Because this testimony, this third testimony, continues, for us, continues through us today. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Family, at Pentecost, at Pentecost, at the outpouring of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit came. The church was born. And the Spirit testified through the disciples that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, did they make it to the ends of the earth? No. I think Paul made it as far as Italy. 
There's some church fathers that report that some of the disciples made it as far as, as India and Iraq and the Afghanistan area, but they didn't make it to the uttermost parts of the earth. This testimony of, of the Spirit continues today through you and through me, through our witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father continues today to testify through the Holy Spirit, that is through, through Spirit-filled believers, that Jesus Christ is Lord. When you share the gospel, when you witness to your neighbor, when you witness to your loved one, when you publicly profess that Jesus Christ is Lord and you share the gospel, you are testifying for the Father. You are fulfilling this scripture in 1 John chapter 5, testifying by the Spirit. That is amazing, family. You and I get to be a part of God's plan and being a testimony, being a living epistle, and being a witness. And I'm going to tell you right now, I don't care what their response is. The word of God never comes back void. You witness, to, you witness to people. You share Jesus with people. You share with them his love, his truth, his grace. And despite their response, whether they accept it or reject it, it does not come back void. Okay? It's in their hearts. It's in their minds. When they lay their head on their pillow at night, in the quietness of their soul, they are thinking about these things. When things rattle their world and they have those aha moments and those thoughts of eternity, what are they thinking about? They're thinking about the gospel. And they're thinking about, I need Jesus. I remember all those years that rebellious David Ford lost as a rock. And my grandma, every time I go see her, she would share the gospel with me. She would preach Jesus. You know what I said? I'll I, I be very kind and very nice, but basically I say, no thanks. Basically I say, no, I, I, that's not me. I'm not, I'm not there. I'm not ready. You know, I, 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 I wasn't ready to accept Christ. I didn't want to accept Christ. I didn't, just, didn't, just didn't, want, didn't want to have part of it. I knew if I accepted Christ, I'd have to stop doing things I enjoyed. But in the quietness of my heart, in the days, weeks, months, and years after that, I thought about what Grandma said. I thought about the witness, and it was impacting me greatly. But when we testify, when we're a witness, we are validating, we are fulfilling this text. In um, 1 John chapter, four, chapter, chapter 5, we're testifying because the Holy Spirit in us is testifying to who Jesus Christ is. So that is what I give, to, that is what I present to you this morning. That's what the text says concerning his water, concerning the blood, and concerning the Holy Spirit. Everything in the scripture points to the Son of God. Everything in scripture points to the Lord Jesus. Now let's go back to uh, 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, and we'll stay there for the rest of my teaching as we continue in verse 10. It says, The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. And the one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God is giving concerning his son. Do you see that the first half of verse 10? He says the one who believes in the son of God has this testimony in himself. What's he talking about there? That testimony is the Holy Spirit. What we just talked about. That, 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 that is 
what he is saying when he says, the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you, and the Holy Spirit of God dwelling on the inside of you. His ultimate aim, his ultimate goal in life is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, to be a witness, to share God, to share his love, to share Christ. That is his testimony living in us. But notice what he says, because, but the one who does not believe God has made him a liar. You know, the, the ultimate sin, the ultimate sin, the greatest tragedy, the greatest mistake a person can make is rejecting Christ, is refusing to surrender and trust in him. In essence, basically what they're saying is they're calling God a liar when he has made his truth abundantly clear. God makes his truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ abundantly clear through scripture, through creation, through the testimony of believers, and through the deep, convicting work of the Holy Spirit. You know, I remember hearing the gospel and pushing it away and rejecting it. But the further I ran away, the, heart, the, more, the more I resisted it, the more he knocked on my heart. The more he said, come to me. Come to me. Put your trust in me. It's not about a religion, David. It's about a relationship. It's about being born again. It's about trusting in Christ. It's not about looking this way or looking that way or conforming on the outside to look a certain way or not. But it's about a heart change of being born again and accepting his love and his truth and letting go and removing the condemnation and the guilt and the wrath that's upon us before we come to Christ. Verse 11. Verse 11. Let's not call God a liar, but let's say, Lord, I trust you. I love you. And maybe you're struggling with faith. Maybe you don't quite understand this all. Man, can I just encourage you to, to open your Bible and say, Lord, please help me? Can, can, can you offer that prayer to him? I don't understand it. I'm, I'm not ready to accept it. But can you offer up that prayer to God saying, Lord, please help me understand this. If there's a way, help me understand this. Help me see what's being said here. Help me to open my heart to your truth. Verse 11. He says, And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and the life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. John here is, is driving home a point. That's kind, of, that's kind of the thesis of this entire book. If you have Jesus, you have eternal life. If you don't, then you don't have eternal life. John here is making a declarative statement on the exclusivity of eternal life through Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus, you have eternal life. It's that simple. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have eternal life. If you do not know Jesus, you do not have eternal life. And there's no other way to eternal life and to forgiveness of sins. Jesus is not one way to salvation. He is the only way to salvation. Thank you. Praise the Lord. He's the only way, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Because he is the only he is the beloved, eternal Son of God who came to this world. He's the only one that died on the cross. And he's the only one of all the worldly religions 
of all the religions out there that not only uh, did he die on the cross, but he rose from the grave. His resurrection validates everything he says. Verse 13, verse 13, he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Friends, family, are you, do you struggle with this? Do you struggle with assurance? Do you struggle knowing, man, am I truly saved? Am I truly born again? Am I getting this right? Do you wrestle with those kind of thoughts? Am I truly a Christian or am I fake? Do you wrestle with those kind of thoughts? Do you wrestle with the assurance of your salvation? Family, John is making it simple, okay? If you have Jesus, if you are trusting in Christ, you can have assurance. You can know. You can put those doubts to rest. You can put, let go of them. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. We, we have the Son. We have assurance of eternal life. And when you have assurance of eternal life, man, it just makes life better. Because you settled that, that ultimate thing. You settled the big question in life which is what happens when I step into eternity and, and, and making sure that you're in a right relationship with God. When you get that right, it just brings peace of mind. It brings peace in our souls. It gives us a better life, understanding our eternal security. It's beautiful. I love it. I love the assurance. I have eternal life because Jesus Christ is my Lord and I'm trusting in him. It's that simple. It's not water baptism. It's not church attendance. It's not how much you give. It's not any other religious duty out there that you could think of. And there's a lot of religious things you can do in life. It's trusting in Christ. You have Jesus. You have eternal life. Assurance leads to confidence. Look at verse 14. Verse 13 is assurance. Verse 14 is confidence. Confidence in what, Pastor David? Look at verse 14. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And, it, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. When you have assurance of eternal life, you've settled that eternal business, you know your prayers are heard. Okay? There is a confidence there's a confidence. I know because I'm trusting in Christ that he hears my prayer. We can have confidence in our prayer life. James 5.16 says the effective prayer of a righteous man is powerful and accomplishes much. This is the effective prayer of a righteous man. A man who's, or woman who's trusting in Christ, who is a believer your prayers are powerful. They are effective. You can have confidence in your prayer life. But I want you to notice, look at verse 14. Uh, look at verse 14. Remember this, when we talk about prayers, it says in verse 14, if we ask anything, a what? What does it say? According to his will. We need to remember this when it comes to our prayer life and the things that we ask the Lord for. Prayer is not about our will but about God's will. See, a spirit-filled believer, a righteous person who's trusting in Christ and who understands the gospel, their prayer life is going to be filled and is going to be rich with the heart 
of the Father, okay? You're going to be praying for people's salvation. You're going to be praying for people's healing. You're going to be praying for the needs of the body. You're going to be praying for whatever is troubling your heart, okay? We can pray for any and everything. I'm not saying we pray for a Lamborghini or a house on Lake Murray as much as one of those would be nice. I, had, I remember growing up as a kid, man, on my ceiling in my living room, uh, I mean, in my bedroom, I had a big red Lamborghini. And I said, one day I'm going to have one of those. I never did. But we don't pray for those kind of things. Our prayers are in accordance with God's will and God's plan and God's purposes in this world. Now, there may be things the scripture doesn't address that you need to pray for. And we need to bring those to his throne of grace. We need to give, present everything to the Lord. Everything that troubles our heart. Everything that bothers us. Everything where we have trials, troubles, and tribulations in this world. We need to bring those requests to the throne of the Father. Because he loves us. And he cares for you. You know that? God cares for you. And, not only, and it's not just about salvation, even though salvation is the big picture. It's about everything in life, okay? He cares about every single hair on your head. He cares about every single detail of your life, where you work, uh, what, do you, what do you do with your, with your finances, uh, who do you marry, what do you name your children, you know, all the intricate details of life. We can bring them all to his throne of grace. We can pray and we can have confidence because God answers prayer. He answers all prayer with one of three answers. He either says yes, no, or wait. But the bottom line is, according to the text, verse 14, we have confidence that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He knows us. He hears us. And that should bring deep comfort and a deep reassuring faith that we trust in a God who hears us and he sees everything that's taking place in the world right now didn't catch God off guard. He knows what's going on, and we need to be praying for all those in authority, everyone in our government, all of our medical facilities, all of our churches, all of our pastors, um, everything that's going on in this world. Uh, we don't need to be gossiping. We don't need to be talking. We don't need to be espousing our opinions one way or another. We need to be praying. We need to be praying for all of those who are being affected and impacted by what's going on in our world. Why? Because we are confident, Christians. We are confident in our prayers. And we, believe, we believe God hears and God answers and God moves. There's certain things in this life, uh, this will shake the little foundation for, for my Calvinist brothers and sisters, but there are certain things in life that will not happen unless we pray. God responds to the prayers of his people to previously he wouldn't respond if we didn't pray. We got to call on our Heavenly Father. We got to call on him and ask him to move mightily. Amen? Verse, I believe we're at verse uh, 16. Verse 16. This is a really, this is another, there's really in this por portion of scripture we're studying this morning, there was two big things. One was the, uh, the blood, the water, and the spirit that grabs a lot of people's attention. Well, this next little passage right here, it grabs a lot of people's attention too and creates a lot of conversation, which is really cool. But look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask 
And God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. For all, excuse me, it doesn't say for, verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin. And there is a sin not leading to death. Now, you ready for the punchline on this text? John doesn't tell us what the sin is. He doesn't. The, 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 John does not say specifically what the sin is. John, what is the sin? What sin are you talking about? You know, some people would say in this text, John here is referring to the sin of rejecting Christ. And that is one of the views, that this is the sin of rejecting Christ. But I respectfully, humbly, in the spirit of grace, disagree. Because if you look at verse 16, it says, if anyone sees what? His brother. It says, if anyone sees his brother. When I see that word, his brother, that tells me that John is talking about another believer. He's referring to a believer. You know, and the text says, now let's, I'm just going to lay it out for you plainly. This text does say there are sins that lead to death, and then there are sins that do not lead to death. I per, my conviction on this text is he's talking about physical death. He's, ta- he's, talking about, um, he's talking about physical death. And you and I, friend, we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to pray for and warn other believers who are living in blatant rebellion. I'm not talking about struggling. I'm talking about people who have the iron fist and they're running in the opposite direction. They're, they're, they're just vehemently rebelling against God, and they were a brother or sister in Christ. You and I have a responsibility to go and talk to them. Consider Ananias and Sapphira. Acts chapter 5, what do they do? They lied to the Holy Spirit. And what happened? Boom! God struck them down. They lied to the Holy Spirit, and they both dropped dead. Then I believe it's um, 1 Corinthians chapter chapter 11, I don't have it written now, but I believe it's 1 Corinthians 11, where there were believers at Corinth, and God took them out. Why? They were abusing the Lord's Supper. So there, I, believe, I believe that, now I'm not going to be dogmatic, I'm not going to fight with you over it, but I, I believe here he's talking about physical death. He's talking about judgment. You know, there, there comes a point where, where a believer is so wrecking their life, they're so destroying their life, and they're so bent own rebellion that God says, you know what, I'm going to bring you home before, I make it, before you make it any worse. I believe that's what he could be talking about here. But this brings up the application, the application to this text is this. How do you and I approach a brother or sister in rebellion? How do you do it? Do you go, Rick, get over here right now. I got to talk to you. We got to have a talk. Do we do it like that? No. No, 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 no. We need to learn the art and the persuasion of having those difficult conversations with our brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to give you three ways that you can talk to your brother and sister in Christ. Because if we truly love our brother and sister in Christ, we will lovingly speak the truth in love and hopefully bring them back to the Lord. But how do we approach our brother or sister in rebellion? Number one, prayerfully. Prayerfully. Man, we need to fast. We need to fast. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us. Lord, give me the words to speak to my brother. Lord, how do I do this? 
and, and just pray and seek the Lord and trust God that he'll give us wisdom. He'll give us understanding. He'll give us an extra measure of his Holy Spirit to talk to the individual. Secondly, we do it in private, complete privacy. It's nobody else's business. If you remember that one principle, it will take you a long ways in helping your brothers and sisters in Christ. If, if, if I have a brother who, who's walking away from the Lord and making poor decisions, it's none of y'all's business. And I'm not going to make it your business. I'm going to go to my brother in private. Might not even tell my wife. Might not even tell my family. Because I want to win them over. And a lot of times when someone confronts us, the thing that keeps us from responding is what? Embarrassment. And we don't want to embarrass people. I've made so many foolish mistakes in life. I've rebelled so many times against the Lord since I became a Christian that if, if somebody flashed all my dirty laundry, it would be very embarrassing. But a brother, or a brother who comes to me in private and says, hey, man, let's, let's go to Starbucks. Let's have a cup of coffee. Let's talk. You know, and I see that they love and they care and they, they're not there to embarrass me. My heart's going to be more open. We need to do the same thing. We need to do it in private. And number one, we do it in love. We do it in love. Except for the grace of God, there go I. Is my thought process when I'm talking to a brother and I'm trying to help them along. That, that I see the situation that they're facing. And I'm like, man, that could be me. That could be me. I want to love him. I want to put my arm around him. I'm not going to condemn him. I'm going to point him to the Savior. That's how we do it. I believe it when we, when we apply those principles that, that, uh, that our brothers and sisters will come back to Christ. They don't want that judgmental, pharisaical religious spirit. If you got that judgmental, pharisaical religious spirit, then, then don't confront them because you're just going to drive them further away from the Lord. But if you do it with a heart of compassion, like Jesus did with the woman caught in the act of adultery or the Samaritan woman at the well, John chapter 4, if you do it, the way the master did it, it, it'll bring them back. And that's how we do it. And the other principle we see from these verses here is if you're the one living in blatant rebellion, repent. He might call your number. He might call your number. You know, this, this uh, serious. He struck down Ananias and Sapphira. He struck down these believers at Corinth because they were walking in rebellion. And, they, and, and, and I believe that these were Christians who were mature, they knew the Lord, they were seasoned veterans, but yet they were walking in rebellion. Let's, get, let's, wrap, let's wrap this chapter up. Verse 18, verse 18 and 19, we'll read both of these. We know that no one who was born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. And we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, the opening of this verse says, we know that no one who is born of God sins. Notice that's plural. He's, talking, he's not talking about a, a slip or a fall. He's talking about a deliberate, ongoing rebellion. Because remember what we read back in 1 John? He who claims to be without sin is a liar. So Christians sin. Christians blow it. But what John is talking about here is a blatant, ongoing um, rebellion. And then he says, And we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. How do we keep ourselves from being influenced by Satan? 
and by the evil powers of this world. They're real. They're real. They will entice you. They will allure you. They will drop that blanket over your mind, that dark cloud, and drag you away. How do we keep ourselves from being influenced by the power? He mentions the evil one in verse 18 where he says, uh, and the evil one does not touch him. And in verse 19, the power of the evil one. How do we protect ourselves? By being in complete surrender to Jesus Christ. That's, just, that's simple, man. That's, that's not rocket science. That's what, if someone comes to me and, and talks about, you know, they're dabbling in witchcraft. They're, they're dabbling in the occult. They're, they're, they're playing with sorcery and evil and immorality. I'd be like, bro, sister, you need to repent and completely surrender your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and run, flee, get away from those things. And then also fellowship. You know what you're doing right now? Just by you getting up early, coming to church, and rubbing shoulders with believers. Do you know there's a spiritual dynamic taking place this morning just by you being here? You know what the Bible calls it? It calls it fellowship. Fellowship. It's where I fist pump with Tirza. Hey, Tirza, how's things going at Irma High? How's things going in the guard? You know, it's George, man. How's things going with the new job, man? How's the Panthers' uh, new facility looking up there in Rock Hill? It's just talking with each other and having fellowship with each other and, and starting conversations. You know, some of the best parts of church, I, w- I would like to think maybe is my teaching, but it might be after service. Or before service. It might be those times where you're spending time with each other. Having a cup of coffee and some donuts. And having fellowship. That's the kind of things that keep us from the influences of the world. Is being in fellowship. And ultimately, studying the word. Studying the word and being in the word. The word will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the word. Let's stay in the word. And let's keep ourselves far as far, far away as possible from the darkness of this world. Verse 20 and 21, the final two verses of, um, John, of John's first epistle, and this probably, probably contains the most important piece of information in all of this letter. Let's take a look at it, verse 20. The most important thing in life is this, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourself from idols. The most important thing in life is that we know and understand the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not rocket science. It's simple faith. It's simple childlike faith. Jesus died on the cross for me. He rose from the grave. I'm going to live my life for him. And I'm going to understand that my sin was paid for at the cross. I'm going to understand that my hope and firm security in my eternal salvation of where where, where I spend eternity is firmly grounded in his resurrection. In knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. Not about being on a church roll or, or any of our other religious duties, but it's about knowing him who loves us. And then we turn around with that love that we've experienced from him. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us, and while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. We take that love and we turn it around 
and we love those around us. We, we love those around us. And with that, he says, uh, notice what he says in verse 20. This is the true God and eternal life. When we get to, I've already started preparing for um, 2 John, which I'll do next Sunday. But in the first four verses of 2 John, there, I think it's 12 or 13 verses, but in the first four verses, he uses the word truth. Uh, it's either four or five times. But we're gonna, next Sunday, we're going to talk about truth. We're going to talk about the God of truth, the word of truth. Jesus is the truth. Because just, that's the emphasis of 2 John. But he says here, this is the true God. Okay? In other words, what he's saying is, Jesus is the one who is real and is true and dwells on the other side in eternity. He is the one that rules and reigns. If you are believing in Jesus, you have eternal life. You have forgiveness of sin. You have this new life. And what does the final words of the verse say in verse 21? I love this. Little children. This is a term of endearment by John. And we're going to see this even more next week when he refers to her as the chosen lady. But this is a term of endearment. He's like, guard yourself from idols. In other words, what he's saying is protect yourself from anything that could come between you and Jesus. Anything in this life, it could be, it could be some work, it could be money, it could be, it could be anything that tries to pull you away from Jesus. If it does, uh, guard your, if it does, remove it from your life and guard yourself in this life from things that can separate you from your loving Heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Hope you've enjoyed the study of 1 John chapter 5. We're going to pick it up next week with um, 2 John where he continues this truth. But let's, 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 let's walk in his truth. Let's walk in his grace. And let's understand that the Father has testified. That makes our faith firm. That makes our faith strong and established in this life. That is our firm foundation. Let us pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord, for this day. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for 1 John chapter 5, Lord, this amazing passage, Lord. Lord, teach us how to lovingly talk with our brothers and sisters. Show us how to comfort them, challenge them, Lord, to walk with you, God. And Father, let our faith and our, 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 our faith be firmly grounded in your word in the truth that you have testified to. It's your baptism, Lord. At the inauguration, Lord, you came in this life to give us life and life more abundantly. You came to show us how to live. Then you went to the cross to, sh to die on the cross for our sins. And Lord, finally, you testify through the Spirit, Lord. Help us all here to be yielded to your Holy Spirit. And let us testify of your greatness. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, Father. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And we thank you for this day and we thank you for your word. In your awesome name we pray. Amen.